All right. I, I hope I can come back again one day. <laughs> hey, it's been fun to uh, hang out with uh, you men over the weekend. It's a joy to be here this morning as well. If, uh, if you are a wife uh, that sent your husband or a girlfriend that sent, sent your future husband off to camp, can you put your hand up? Nice and high. Own your husbands. Okay. Nice, nice and high. I, I got to know, thank you, I got to know your, your guys a little bit over the weekend, and, and ladies, all I can say is, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, no, I'm joking. These are great guys, and listen, if, uh, if you ask them what they learned uh, at the retreat, and they, they have you, uh, they, they want you to, uh, to know the content of some of these sessions and some of the principles, that's great, but boy, we challenge them to come home and be different men to be different kinds of husbands, to be leaders, to be disciples, to be intentional with relationships. So wives, future wives, expect your husbands to put these things into practice. Would you do that? Pray for them and uh, encourage them in these things. Boy, it's just fun to be here. Eric, there's a lot more people here than there used to be. (laughs) I I think um, last time I was here, it's got to be like eight or nine years ago, something like that. And this church has been blessed and so thankful that uh, you get to come here. I'm sure it's the Word of God that has brought you to this church. Is that true? Because you know when you come and you listen that this pulpit is a sound pulpit. And what you're going to hear is words from God. And uh, that's why people gather for worship and they want to hear the faithful preaching of the Word of God. And they want their lives to be impacted by it. Yes? And uh, I really pray that that's true this morning as well. I want to take you to the book of Malachi, way back to the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, chapter 1, and uh, I'd love for you to take your Bibles and turn there with me, chapter 1. I want to talk this morning about how God loves people. He loves people even when they're ungrateful. (laughs) Ever been ungrateful? God loves you anyway. Um, God loves us no matter what. And I trust that this will be a, a challenging uh, lesson for us all as uh, we begin a new week. Uh, I, this year I turned 52. A couple of years ago I celebrated my 50th birthday and um, I was feeling a little bit nostalgic or something. I don't know. I was thinking about life and I went back and I found one of my old diaries. Anyone ever keep a diary, a journal? Just a few, right? I did this when I was uh, younger. When I was, uh, I, this one that I found, I was 11, 12 years old, something like that. Usually my practice back then was to start a journal at the beginning of the year and kind of just peter out and never finish. But this one I finished. It was 1981. I was 11 turning 12, and I wanted to share some of the entries with you. Is that Okay. Now, now, please, Um, my spelling's bad, Uh, my attitude is really bad, and uh, but I want to I want to share this with you. Listen, I'm entrusting my reputation to you, so please don't judge me too much. Okay, Um, this is this is I was in New Zealand, and kind of a typical uh, typical boy. Here's my entry on March twelfth, nineteen eighty one. Today. I took my scrapbooks to school. The cover isn't fixed yet. I've been playing with my cricket ball at the intervals. Bad spelling, I know it. Uh, I've been making a poster 
with a picture of a boat in it. It was really hard to draw. Dad is being ugly again, weather warm, bedtime 8.40. Just got necessary details for the day, you know, <laughs> just in case I wanted to remember that, you know, at some point. Uh, here's March 19th, here we go, it's a week later. Today, Mr. Patel, that was my teacher, he made us run around the field and then do a forward flip on the trampoline, but I couldn't do it. So he said to do a forward roll, but I, I couldn't do that either. So I just got off. Dad is being ugly again. Weather windy, cold, bedtime 9.05. I don't know if that's an appropriate bedtime for a 12-year-old. I Probably is about right. This is April uh, 15th, the next one. Our play went really neat, except we lost the cross, which was going to go on Jesus' back. We will be putting, uh, putting the play on tomorrow in school time. No one can get some parts for my watch. Mum said that if she buys another watch, it won't be a digital. I guess that was the end thing, a digital watch. You know, anything else was not good enough. Uh, so my response, it isn't fair. Weather windy, bedtime 9.40. Here's the last one for you. This is July 28th. I asked Dad if I could buy an air riffle. That's a rifle. (laughs) He said, no. Capital letters, exclamation mark. It isn't fair. I just want to be like the other boys. They have all got one. I've been to St. John's. We had an inspector there tonight. She wasn't very good. Weather warm, bedtime, 9.25. Now, now I want you to, there's a trend here. I want you to see it in summary form. Here it is. Number one, it isn't fair. Number two, it isn't fair. I just want to be like the other boys. Number three, dad is being ugly again. And number four, dad is being ugly again, again. That, that, I'm sorry to say, is pretty much the attitude and tone of my entire journal for the whole year. It's kind of a sad thing. And as I read through this, the picture I had in my mind was a young lad sitting in his father's lap, slapping his father across the face because life was just so unfair. I was unhappy. I was just critical of life and people in my life. But here's the thing. I was loved. I was cared for. My family was wonderful. My parents were great. I was embraced, warm, dry, and filled. I had more than most kids in the world. And instead of being grateful, I complained because life was just that unfair. It's what we call, in New Zealand, we call it spitting the dummy. Have you heard that term? So what a baby does when they, they're angry with the world and they spit out the pacifier, we call it the dummy. <laughs> but as adults, we do this sometimes, right? We spit the dummy. Pack a sad, you know, we, and, and for me, what's embarrassing is I recorded the whole thing in a journal to regurgitate later. But listen, that's exactly what the nation of Israel was doing in Malachi 1. Uh, It's exactly what this nation was doing with God. They were spitting the dummy. They were upset with God. you believe this? Nation of Israel, they're ungrateful, they're unloving. 
They, this nation have become entitled infants who think they deserve better from God. So look at this. Let's read the passage together. And we'll get started with this. We're jumping right into the text. It's Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. And it reads this way. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I've made his mountains a desolation, and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Eden says, we've been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Just five verses, but this is a pretty amazing passage. Very impactful. It's a shocking passage because, listen, Israel's attitude just stinks. They've become so entitled. Their attitude stinks. Now, let me give you a little summary here of Israel's history, just so we can kind of locate the passage in its context, okay? Firstly, Israel has been restored back into the promised land. They, they had been taken off into captivity uh, by the Babylonians, but now they're back in the land. God brought them back. And, and the city of Jerusalem is being rebuilt, and the temple is, has been rebuilt Prosperity is returning to this nation. They're enjoying freedoms that they hadn't had before. These are pretty comfortable days for Israel. And then comes Malachi. Now, Malachi is the last prophet of the Old Testament, the last dude. And this is what he says to this nation. They are blessed by God back in the land that was promised to them. And this is what he says to them in verse 1. He says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Now look at the verse. Just look at the details here. It's the introduction. First he says that this is the oracle. It's an interesting word. The oracle of the word of the Lord. Some of your translations, I don't know what you all have here today, but some translations say this is the burden of the word of the Lord. The burden. It's like a a heavy burden. It's a heavyweight message that Malachi has for this nation of Israel. Listen, and we're looking at it this morning. If you're you're looking for a lightweight sermon this morning, you're not going to get it. This is a heavy burden, okay? It's a heavy message that God has for these people. God is not happy with the nation. He's not happy because they're Little infants slapping him across the face. Now, Malachi literally means my messenger. That's the word Malachi. So what you have then in verse 1, this book is a heavy burden from the Lord 
It's for Israel, and Malachi, the prophet, is the agent. He's the messenger between God and the nation. Then we get to the burden itself. Look here at verse 2. This, we'll call this God's declaration, if you're taking notes. God's declaration. And this is what God declares in verse 2. He says, simple statement. He says to them, I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you, Israel. Simple statement. He's, he's, he's talking directly to them through Malachi. He says, Israel, I have loved you. I'm the creator of the universe. I'm the God who is righteous in all his ways. I can do anything I want, and I have chosen Israel to love you. You say, well, how did he do that? Well, he he loved them by choosing their father Abraham. That was an act of love. He loved Israel by making them his special chosen people. He loved them by promising blessings and a land and a kingdom and a future relationship with him. It's a great promise. God loved them. He loved them providing a sacrificial system. This was a blessing. He gave them a sacrificial system by which, through faith, they could receive forgiveness for sins. What a great act of love. He loved them by making himself available to them in a special relationship. And then, even more recently in their history, just right before Malachi, he loved them by allowing them to survive the Babylonian captivity. And and now they're back in the land. God brought them back, restored them from exile. The nation is thriving. There's renewed religious life. There's great social life. He's kept his promises to them. Listen, God has loved Israel. It's a simple statement, but has massive implications because Israel did not appreciate it at all. They don't see it. They don't acknowledge it. They don't get it. Instead, you know what they do? They call his love into question. It's, it's like they're, just like me, spoiled brat, calling my father ugly. That's what they were doing. That's just so, so wrong. Look again here at verse 2. And we'll call this uh, second point in the outline This is Israel's denial, okay? Israel's denial. The Lord says, I've loved you, Israel. And this is how the nation responds. They say, how? How have you loved us? And I'm I'm reading this. I don't know about you. I'm thinking, how on earth could they even dare to ask that question? What what a, a shocking question this is. Terrible accusation. How, how could they dare to ask the sovereign God of the universe that question when all he's done has been loving to them? And the answer is this. This is how they got to this state. They had become apathetic. They had become complacent. They had become comfortable. They were entitled They were just like American Christians. True? So comfortable. Instead of seeing themselves as blessed by a sovereign God, they complained. 
Every little thing that didn't go their way, they complained. They, thought, they actually thought that God was obligated to give them a better life. They, they, they believed that they weren't being treated the way they deserved, and so they, they throw this accusation. Just, you could see it. This accusation, they throw it back in God's face, slap him, and say, you haven't loved us, God. How do you think that made God feel? Just imagine. Put yourself in God's place. How does he feel with this accusation? Listen, many, many of you are parents, and, and you know firsthand, don't you, what it's like when a child comes to you and says, I hate you, Mum. They said that to you? I hate you, Dad. And all you've done is shown them love. Imagine how God's heart sunk when his beloved nation, his chosen people, slap him across the face and say, you haven't loved us, God. I I wonder how they could possibly ever get to this place. How do they say that? I I, I wonder if some examples for us today would be helpful. Because we do the same thing. I, I have... I'm sure you have as well. Listen, let me give you these examples. My wife just cussed me out. Not my wife, Serena. It's an example. It's an illustration, okay? So, yeah, just an illustration, okay? My wife just cussed me out. How could God dare to give me a wife who could do that? See how this works? My husband ignores me day after day after day. It's like he doesn't even know I'm there. How could God allow me to marry a guy like that? What a deadbeat. How could God let that happen? My boss just let me go. Where's God's love now? My investment was blown to smithereens. I've lost everything. And I thought God was supposed to love me. My car just broke down. I'm I'm stranded. How come God doesn't love me today like he did yesterday when my car was okay? My parents used to beat me. Where was God's love then? I've been persecuted unfairly. Life shouldn't be this way. How come God's not fixing that? My friends have abandoned me. God doesn't care about me. And my child, my child has cancer. Where's God's love now? See how this becomes very much close to home? Because we do this, don't we? We question God's love. And it's in moments like that, we're just like Israel, exactly the same. And what happened was Israel really believed that God owed them. That was the problem, right? They believed that God owed them more. They thought they actually deserved his favor, his selection, and now they're just doubting his love. Now look here at verse 2 again, because what you see here is God's answer. So God says, I love you, Israel, and they say, No, you don't. How have you loved us? And here is God's defense, point number three. Israel says, 
how, how have you loved us? And the Lord answers with this. It's a question. He says, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Interesting response, isn't it? That's, that's his answer. Weren't Esau and Jacob brothers? Weren't they the same? Weren't they equals? Did, didn't these two men have the same parents? That's God's question. That's his response. And by the way, if you wanted to go back, I'd, I'd even ask you maybe this afternoon, go back to Genesis 25 and read the story. Jacob and Esau. Just remind yourself how that fleshed out. It's an awesome story. If you do that, what you'll find there is that Abraham had a son. His name was Isaac. Yep. Isaac had twin sons, Jacob and Esau. But get this, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Esau, they're all, they're all wicked men. You understand that, right? We kind of read the Old Testament like these are God's men, God's characters. But these are wicked men. The Gentiles, Abraham was a Gentile, he was a liar, he was an adulterer. In spite of that, God chose him to be the father of Israel. Isn't that amazing? Isaac, his son, was no better. Isaac was chosen too by God to inherit the blessings that were promised to Abraham. And then came Jacob and Esau. Neither of them deserved God's favor. Neither of them. Neither of them were choice-worthy. Neither of them was better than the other. But this is what happened. In God's providence and God's sovereign choice, he, he chose to pass Abraham's blessings to Isaac and then on to who? Jacob. Not Esau, but Jacob. And now here in Malachi, this is, this is 1,500 years later after Jacob and Esau. And Jacob's descendants are Israel, and they're slapping God across the face, and they're saying, you don't love us. And this is God's response. He says, listen, I just as easily could have chosen Esau, you know. I could have chosen Esau. I didn't have to choose Jacob. Neither of them deserved my favor. Neither one of them was better than the other. I chose you. I chose Jacob. I chose his lineage. I didn't have to, but I, I chose you, Israel. Doesn't, and God is simply saying this. Doesn't that prove my love for you? And the Lord's defense is so amazing. Israel is just apathetic. They're complaining. They're prideful. They're lazy. They're stingy, ungrateful. And God's defense is just to show them, listen, I chose you to be my special people. I've loved you. It's like, um, it's like uh, going into an orphanage. Uh, my wife and I were in, we've been to Uganda several times, and um, two times ago, it's actually a number of years ago, uh, we were younger. We, we thought we might even try to adopt a child or two from Uganda. So we go into this little village, well, it's actually a large town, Jinja in Uganda, and there's an orphanage there. And you see these kids because they know, you know, a visitor walks in, they know what's going down. They might get chosen. And these cute little African kids are just awesome. And you see their faces and your heart just goes out to them. But imagine this. Someone goes into an orphanage, looks around, 
There's 100 kids and selects one and takes that child, brings them into their home, loves them, provides for them, gives them a future that we'd never have had otherwise. Is that not loving? And then what would it be like if that child, years down the track, turned around to those adopting parents and said, you didn't love me. You did nothing for me. I hate you. That's what Israel is doing to God. And all he's done is chosen them. They didn't deserve to be chosen. None of them. And, and they just are turning their back on their loving father. God has adopted them. And now they're questioning all of this. Keep reading here. Look at verse 2. God says, Even though Esau and Jacob were twin brothers, yet I have loved Jacob, but I've hated Esau. Okay. All right, time out. He hated Esau. Right, what are we going to do with this? All right. God loved Jacob, but hated Esau. The sentence needs some explanation, doesn't it? Does it sound, does it sound fair to you? Just that sentence, does it sound fair? Did God act rightly? Was he just to love one and hate the other? Let me try to help. The first thing we, we cannot do, just a warning, as you deal with that statement, never do this. Never attribute human emotions to God's actions. You know, when we love and when we, when we hate, it's usually in response to something that's happened to us. In our flesh, something occurs, we respond with love or hate. That's not the way God operates. So don't be thinking that God is acting out of human emotions. That's not the case at all. Second, the verbs love and hate cannot be weakened down to mean something along the lines of he loved Jacob more and Esau just a little less. That's not what is going down here. Love and hate are opposites. So let's not try to recalibrate these words to mean something else. He loved Jacob, he hated Esau. And then third, third little warning, God's choice to love a a Jacob is not a question of what Jacob deserved. Because listen, we said before, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Esau, they're all rank sinners. They're all wicked men. None of them deserved God's favor. So, So that means then, this is not even a question of what's fear, right? Fearness is not even the issue. It's a trick question. I got you before. That's not the issue. Listen, if you really want to talk about what Esau and Jacob deserved, they both deserved God's judgment. They both deserved eternal hell, both of them. Both of them were sinners from conception. They were depraved from their beginning in the womb. And just like Abraham and Isaac before them, both of them should have been condemned to eternal death in hell. So don't be thinking that Esau missed out on something. He didn't. He got what he deserved. Conversely, what should amaze us? And this, this is incredible to me. What should amaze us is that Jacob got any love whatsoever. That is the amazing thing. 
because Jacob didn't deserve it either. See, here's the warning. I, just think about this. Don't, be, don't ever be upset that Esau missed out on God's love. Esau got what he deserved. Just did. That's expected. Be amazed, though, that God chose to love Jacob. That's what we shouldn't expect. That's the amazing statement here. You know, people, um, I don't know if, what all your backgrounds are, church-wise and Bible teaching-wise. Um, the, the word Calvinism, we talk about predestination, election, these kinds of ideas where God has chosen those who would be saved from before the foundation of the world. People get upset with that. Like this is not, they'll say, this is not fear. God is being mean. How come he chose these ones and not those ones? That's just unfair. And what people are not understanding is this. We all deserve hell. All of us. The fact that he would show grace to any one of us is such a pleasure and a joy. Should make us grateful, not complaining. Don't criticize God. He's done a good thing. All God did was go into the orphanage of the world and choose a child here and a child there and take them into his family and make them his own. That is the definition of love. Don't call God unfair. Now look at this in verse 3. God continues, he says, I hated Esau, and and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. That's what God did to Esau and his descendants. Who are Esau's descendants? The Edomites. It's Edom. It's a nation. And as Malachi wrote these words, Israel needed to consider what their lot would have been like. What would Jacob's descendants be like if, the, if God had given them what he gave Edom, Esau's descendants? That's the question here. They would have been just like Edom, a desolation, a wilderness, a scavenger's existence. No blessing, no holy land, and no love. God is simply reminding Jacob's descendants, Israel, he's saying, listen, what have you, if you had ended up just like Esau's descendants? I've loved you. Do you ever consider what your life would have been like if you hadn't have got saved? What kind of path would you have gone on? No Christ, no Christian friends, no Christian influence, no Bible, no gospel. Your life would be a mess. Yes? Trials come and you wouldn't know how to handle them probably divorce, probably broken families, relationships messed up. Hasn't God been so kind to us? All you need to do is to consider the lives of others. Many of you have siblings, and your sister or your brother is exposed to the same truths that you were. You responded to the gospel, and they didn't. Wasn't God kind to you? Now look at this. God condemns Edom and states 
his judgment upon that evil nation, but look at how they respond. This is Edom. This is, this is not the chosen nation. This is Esau's de, de, uh, descendants. They, they are defiant. Look here at verse 4. We'll call it Edom's defiance. Okay, Edom's defiance. In verse 4, Edom says, we've been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Now listen, the Edomites, Esau's descendants, they knew their Old Testament history just like Israel did. The Edomites knew that they were not God's chosen people. They knew that, but they didn't care. In their pride and arrogance, what they're saying is, even though we are not God's people, we don't care. We are going to rise up and be a mighty nation anyway. We're going to build up the walls We've been beaten down, but we're going to return. We're coming back. And we are going to be someone. Going to make it on their own. They, they thought, listen, we don't need God's blessing. We don't need God. We can make it on our own. This is that selfish, independent arrogance of a nation who's going to fly. And this is what God says to them. Look at this. God's determination God's determination, verse 4 again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, he says, Edom may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. In other words, God is saying this, Edom can try all they want, but I am going to destroy them. Arrogant, proud men They can plan all they want. They can work as hard as they might to increase their riches and to improve their livelihood and guarantee security and line their pockets and secure the comfort. But in the end, all of that turns out to be nothing when God tears it down. That's what sinners deserve. This is what God does. And there's an interesting little play on words here because instead of living in the Holy Land, they live where? In the wicked territory. They live in Sin City. That's where they are. They will never rise to prominence because God is angry with their indulgence, insolence. This is God's righteous determination for sinners. It's what sinners deserve. It's appropriate. It's just. It's right. Everyone born in sin deserves that fate. And you know what? If it wasn't for God's love, that would be our fate as well. The only reason why we're even here is because God has loved us. So God says he's going to treat Edom just as they deserved. And then finally here, we get to the end of the passage. We see Israel's response. And this is called Israel's deliverance. Look at verse 5 here. God says, Israel, your eyes will see this. In other words, Israel, you will see my treatment of Edom. You'll see the way I judged Edom. And then you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. In other words, this is the Lord's promise to Israel. He's saying to them, even though right now you don't love me, and even though right now your heart is far from me, and even though, Israel, right now you are apathetic towards me, 
and, and, and right now you deny my love for you and you're selfish, you're divorcing one another, you're stingy with your tithes and your priests are allowing you to get away with all of this, even though right now, Israel, you are ungrateful in spite of all of that, one day you're going to return to me. You're going to see my judgment of sinners and you will be grateful. And you're going to come back and I will restore your hearts. I will look at, you'll look at the plight of other nations and then you will be thankful once again. And instead of saying, God, where's your love? And you'll say instead, the Lord be magnified in the whole earth. That's God's promise to Israel. Even though they're ungrateful and unloving, he's going to restore them anyway. Isn't that awesome? All right, so that's the text for this morning. I want to spend the rest of our time making some personal application. Is that okay? For us. Here we are, California, 2021. What is God teaching us here today, all right, through the passage? I want to give you contemporary implications. Write these down, would you? Number one, when you don't see yourself as very bad, you cannot see God as very good. If you don't see yourself as very bad, then you will never see God as very good. In other words, spiritual pride will kill you. Attitudes of self-righteousness and entitlement and self-centeredness will make it impossible for you to see God's goodness. You know those times when you're critical of God? You know why that is? Because you don't realize how bad you are. People think that God's just like them. That's the problem, isn't it? see it all the time. Someone says, I'm a Christian, but you look at their life. They don't appreciate God's discipline. They don't fear God's righteousness. They, they don't think of uh, God's word as kind instructions. They see God's commandments as burdens. What? And when the trials come, they accuse God of not loving them. And the reason behind all of that is because they failed to acknowledge their own rank, rotten, rancid depravity. That's the problem. We need to see ourselves accurately, don't we? We are so sinful that we deserve hell. And for us then, listen, any day not in hell is a really good day. You have to understand and believe that. And I'm not even trying to be cutesy or funny because it's just true. Any day not in hell, that's what we deserve. So any day not in hell is a really good day. You've got to see it that way. Psychology tells us that we are good people trying to be honest to ourselves. The Bible says that we are bad people who need a savior. So we need to humble ourselves. Number two. Number two, when we see the terrible plight of sinners, we should be driven to appreciate God's love for us. When you see your sibling walking further and further and further away from God, and you see them walking away from the gospel, and they know the gospel, they even know they've been around the church a little bit, they're making a mess of their lives, and then you realize, wait a second, my sister, my brother, they were exposed to the very same truths I was. 
same exposure to the gospel. And God chose me? So you look at the plight of sinners who are going off to destruction, that should make you thankful. That should make you appreciate God's love. Listen, we're not saved because we earned it, right? We're not saved because God saw something good in us that was worth saving. We need to be thankful to God always. He doesn't treat us the way we deserve. Number three, God does not owe us. God does not owe us anything. He's not promised trouble-free lives. Listen, if all we receive from God is his friendship and his forgiveness, then we are in a really good place. It's all we need. His friendship, his forgiveness. And we're blessed. You know, sometimes I wonder if we subconsciously buy into the health, wealth, prosperity movement. We, outwardly, we, re, we reject it. Like, those are false teachers. They're wrong. And next thing, we're like, wait a second. Just lost my job. That's not fair. How come he's got more money than I do? That's just wrong. Listen, God doesn't owe us these things. We, I think, you, at least in the Western world, uh, you kind of feel like if you work hard, then life should improve, you know? A bigger home, more security, more comfort. We even think sometimes that relationships should improve and health should be guaranteed. I think God doesn't owe us any of those things. God didn't give them to Jesus. Why should he give them to us? Any day, not in hell. Repeat this to yourself. Okay? Any day, not in hell, is a really good day. I was meeting with a young man a while back. He was your, your stereotypical snowflake. You know what that is, right? The millennial. Millennial, you know, he's like 19, 20. He was really, he was really struggling with everyday life circumstances. He, he was bitter, but he had to go to work. What? He had to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning and go to work. And when he got there, there was this man called a boss who told him what to do. He was frustrated and angry. You know what I said? Suck it up, dude. Welcome to life. It probably wasn't one of my better counseling moments. But listen, listen, that's kind of humorous and funny, but we all succumb to that kind of thinking from time to time. We do. We all do it. We buy into this idea that God owes us some kind of normal, middle-class American life, and he just doesn't. Just doesn't. God doesn't owe us anything. Number four. Number four. Ingratitude always leads to disobedience. Ingratitude always leads to disobedience. If you're not thankful to God, you won't obey him. If you read through the rest of Malachi, you'll see there that Israel failed in multiple areas of disobedience. Why? The starting point was they weren't thankful to him. 
and it led them into all kinds of sin. But if you come to grips with the fact that God loves you, and that, that right there is the key to a changed life. God loves you, and now you want to obey, and you want to honor him and follow Christ. Your heart is drawn towards him in gratitude. Number five, this is a good one. Number five, in the same way, a parent absorbs the unkind words of an ungrateful child in the very same way. Some of you are parents. You absorb the unloving comments from ungrateful children in the very same way, so too does God absorb our sins in order to maintain a relationship with us. Isn't that amazing? When your child says, I hate you, mom, I hate you, dad, and you absorb that, right? You just receive it. You ever tempted to say, well, I hate you too. <laughs> you don't, right? Parent, loving parents don't do that. Why? Because you absorb their sin, you absorb their ungratefulness and their unloving words in order to preserve a relationship with your children. That's exactly what God does to us. He absorbs, he's patient, he's kind, he's long-suffering, he's forgiving, he loves us, he's merciful. Why? So that we might enjoy a relationship with him. Doesn't that make you thankful? Number six, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, be overwhelmed and humbled by predestination. <laughs> it should humble you. God chose you. He could have chosen anyone else, but he chose you. That should humble us before God. We've been adopted by God. He could, have, he could have gone into the orphanage, chosen someone else, but he adopted us when we were bad. We were bad people. He chose us anyway. People get so upset by election. I'm not sure why it is. You know, No one ever comes to me I've been married now 30 years. No, no one ever comes to me and says, Nigel, you're so mean. Nigel, you're mean because you only chose one wife. People don't say that. People don't come and say, Nigel, you're so mean because look at all these other women in the world. They're missing out on your love. <laughs> well, who do you think you are, Nigel? You only took one wife? And yet that's the accusation they're making towards God, isn't it? Here's Christ, the bridegroom. He chooses for himself a bride, selects that bride before the foundation of the world, elects, predestines them, they come to know him in an intimate relationship, and people get angry about it? No, 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 no. No, election, predestination should humble us. Number seven, when trials come, embrace them. When the trials come, embrace them as the kind gift of a loving God. Oh, this is challenging, isn't it? Listen, God brings, he lovingly brings challenges into our life. Why? Because he wants us to learn to be more like Jesus. So instead of running from the trials or trying to escape, we, we need to learn to embrace the trials. 
Does that make sense? You see the challenge, you see the suffering, you see the persecution, you see the hardship and trial. Embrace that thing instead of trying to run away. Because they're designed by God to grow us into Christ-likeness. It's his kind of gift. You've got to see it that way. It goes like this. My wife just cussed me out. But thank you, Lord, that you're teaching me how to display the fruit of the Spirit in my marriage. My words, my wife's unloving words are good for me. Could you say that, men? Or this, my husband ignores me. But thank you, Lord, that I get to love my husband and your strength, even though he doesn't see it. And I'm learning to live my life for your attention, your pleasure, and not man's. You're so kind to give me my husband. Or my boss just let me go. But thank you, Lord, that you're teaching me to trust you and not earthly resources. Or, my investment was blown to smithereens. God, you love me so much that you want me to lean on you and not on earthly securities. Thank you, God, for teaching me that lesson. My car just broke down. Thank you, Lord, for giving me a broken down bomb. It's way better than hell. So that's the way you have to think about it. That's actually a pretty good trade. We deserve hell, and we get a broken-down bomb instead. Awesome. <laughs> You've got to see trials that way. You just have to. My parents were violent towards me when I was younger, but God, thank you for teaching me that you are the loving Father. You're so kind to give me those parents because it's helped me to see your love in stark contrast. I'm being persecuted, but thank you, Lord, that I have the extreme privilege of suffering for Christ's sake and to follow in his footsteps. What a privilege that is. Thank you, Lord. My friends have abandoned me. Thank you, God, for unfaithful friends. They walked away from me but I get to follow in Christ's footsteps whose disciples abandon him too. Thank you that I can follow in his footsteps. My child has cancer. Hmm. Thank you, God, that in spite of the physical effects of the fall, I have this opportunity to consider the realities of eternity and my relationship with you during this trial. Thank you, God, that you love me so much to bring cancer into this family. That is gratefulness, and that is the attitude of a Christian. I've been hanging out with a guy back at Faith Bible Church. He uh, is 21 years old. He was on his way to the Marines. He was a big muscle dude, lots of energy, very athletic, had a car accident, car flipped over on a wet road uh, he almost died had massive brain injury and um, in the weeks and months that followed uh, he, he couldn't walk balance was a problem 
he wasn't thinking and clear thoughts always, his coordination, he, he lost his sight in one eye, couldn't drive. All of his dreams are dashed. But as I met with him, this, this is what he said after some months. He said, you know what, Nigel, I'm just so thankful for this accident because if it wasn't for that, I would still be pursuing a life of sin. And God got my attention, and now I'm following Christ. Isn't that a great attitude? I, sometimes this grates with people. They're like, no, this is wrong. This can't be right. Can't be right. I've got to challenge you and say, listen, if that's not the way you think, then you don't know Jesus Christ. You don't know God. And you're just like the Israelites slapping God across the face because you think you deserve better. Don't be that ungrateful. He loves us so much. That's why he brings difficulties into our lives. Number eight, two to go. Number eight, God expects us to change our attitudes even if he doesn't change our circumstances. Expects us to change our attitudes even if he doesn't change our circumstances. And Malachi Israel is saying, God, they're saying, God, if you would just fix our circumstances, then we will love you. And God is saying, no, 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 no. You love me without circumstances being fixed. He loved them to the hilt. Listen, we've got to change our attitudes, don't we? Our, think about it this way. Sin... Your sin is not just breaking God's law. Sin is breaking God's heart. Can you think about sin that way? You're not just not keeping the law. You're breaking his heart. So change your attitude. Regardless of how God deals with your circumstances. Number nine and lastly... Christians are not those who claim Christ simply to escape hell. Christians are broken people who hate their own sin, dream of being holy, and they trust Christ in order to be transformed. That is a Christian. If Christianity Christianity to you is only a way to avoid hell, then you're not a Christian. If that's all it is, then, then you are not a Christian. You're not saved. It's not genuine faith. That, that is not a heart transformation. It's not Christianity. True Christians are people who hate their sin and they want to change big time, fast. They want to be like Christ. They, they can't stand their fleshly desires. They want change now. And they know that Christ is the one who will do it. So they go to him. So if, if you love your sin, you plan out your sin in advance, you know your wife's going to be away, husband's going to be away, kids are away, you're planning in advance what you can get away with when they're gone. That's not someone who hates their sin. It just isn't. True believers love Christ and they want to follow him no matter what the cost. All right, we're done. Last thought. Genuine Christians lay down their lives daily. When the trials come, you know what they say? Thank you, God. Thank you for the trials. You're so kind to me. 
You're treating me way better than I deserve. You have loved me, and I will never question your love again. That's the response of a true believer. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge this morning that we fail you over and over and over again, and you are so kind to us, so loving. Help us to appreciate you more and more every day. May it be, Lord, that we take whatever circumstances you have deemed necessary in order to make us more like Christ. Help us to love those circumstances, love those trials, love those hardships, because we, we know that you love us like a father. Amen.